0: I'm Sam Backer. Uh, you're listening to the New Books Network, and I'm, we're here with uh, Kevin Byrne, who is the author of Minstrel Traditions, Mediated Blackface in the Jazz Age. Um, and so I, I guess I want to start off by just kind of talking a little bit about the genesis of this project. Um, so I guess, how did you become interested in the subject and and, and what was the trajectory of the research?
1: Um, that's a great question, Sam, and and thank you for talking to me. Um, you know, it started, this has been a project that's been a long period of gestation for me, and um the book is the culmination of really pretty much almost 20 years worth of work. Uh, it was when I was working on my masters uh at Northwestern um some years ago when I first encountered or ran across uh, cases or images of uh, African-Americans in blackface. And it was a guy named Billy Crissands who was, I was reading Robert Toll's book called Blacking Up. And it fascinated me, one, of course, the seeming kind of contradiction of that, uh, an African-American man wearing blackface. Um and then in addition to that, I, I he was seen or widely understood, uh Chris Sands was as the one of the most popular entertainers of his day. This is the 1890s that uh Chris Sands was working. And despite the fact that he was one of the most popular entertainers and one of the, the, the highest paid entertainers uh, of that era, almost nothing had been written about him, and certainly nothing where the you where it was trustworthy scholarship uh and so that was also fascinating kind of angering to me to think about the fact that there was someone who had been uh sort of overlooked in history and in sort of U.S. theater history in particular so I started to want to find out about this man I started to kind of map his uh comings and goings um uh, tracing his routes and, and where he performed and what he performed. And it was kind of a fascinating and very labor-intensive uh, research project that culminated in, in, in my master's thesis uh, into the life of this man. Um, and along the way, the I realized that pretty much every answer that I came to Led to a number of other questions uh about other performers, about the extent of because I was just focusing on one one man I was just traveling you know following him as he traveled around, and you know who were the other performers? what was the uh, response from audiences? Why or why was he so popular with African-American audiences, which he was? What were they seeing in these performances that was different from white audiences? Um, And then to what extent that and another thing is, of course, that when we think about the little that people know about minstrelsy, if they know anything at all, and certainly I think more people are aware of it now than they were even 20 years ago uh if you think about the idea of like jim crow or, or the basis of jim crow laws that that minstrelsy and blackface is is seen as a 19th century phenomenon uh and that it's also seen as a southern phenomenon And I realized that both of those maybe sort of common understandings were were, were not at all true. So it wasn't confined to sort of one region. It was was very much a national and and even international uh, phenomenon. Uh, And nor was it confined to the 19th century. So when I decided I I wanted to continue pursuing this work, uh, and it became the basis of uh, then my dissertation and then the the book itself. I I realized I wanted to see where where did this where did blackface where did minstrelsy go uh, after 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 the point where most uh, histories of minstrelsy ended because most histories of minstrelsy and this was it's changed in in some recent years and there there have been a number of of interesting studies. the past couple of years to cover, uh, areas kind of related to my topic. Um, but, you know, some years ago, the books on minstrelsy were confined to the 19th century and the phenomenon of minstrelsy was not. So that was really where a lot of the, kind of the energy and the impetus, uh, for the volume came one wanting to tell, uh a, a new facet of us history to uh wanting to give overlooked performers uh their proper place in that history and there are a lot of reasons you know ingrained racism in 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 the academy and, and in and in uh and in the histories themselves that tended to overlook black performers um and then also trying to trying to extend the conversation around minstrelsy into the 20th century where uh, there just wasn't a lot of of good material that was covering it. So maybe that's a bit of a long winded answer for you, Sam. But um, that in terms of the 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 impetus and the basis for it, that's really where where it all started.
0: No, that makes I mean, that makes total sense. Um I mean I, I've done I've done some work in in this area as well and certainly Black like sea, is not confined by any stretch of the imagination to the 19th century and and in some ways um expands or at least changes in a number of of of, of critical ways it seems to me in the late 19th and early 20th century which kind of makes up the, the 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 central focus of the book so so kind of along that track I'm wondering what you see as kind of um what's what's different like what's unique about this um kind of era of uh blackface performance and culture that that develops in in the 20th century i, I guess um and how does it differ uh from, from earlier periods of blackface minstrelsy
1: yeah you know that's a great question and and certainly you know so i'm looking of course the jazz age focusing on the on the the 20s and the 30s um and by that point, minstrelsy was—I'm talking—sticking strictly here with with sort of uh, live minstrelsy. Um, minstrelsy wasn't uh, new anymore. It wasn't kind of the, uh, the 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 taboo or the most exciting form of culture. Uh, the way that it was in the 1820s or 1830s, um, it had been around for a while and was really well uh, established um, as an American form of entertainment and as a a propagator of some um, pretty horrendous sort of racist stereotypes. And, it was it was it was past its what's it what's what's say it was past its prime um if we're looking for kind of a metaphor of of bodies or of uh you know like if you're looking thinking of a, of a trajectory of of kind of an ascension and then descension, it was kind of on its way out so to speak um but because of that, there are a lot of Interesting assumptions that performers and audiences could make, a lot of expectations that people had when it came to uh, watching a minstrel show or seeing a performer in blackface. Uh, all of these kind of established uh, stereotypes and racisms, uh, the type of show you were going to see, and the type of humor you were going to experience, all of that was pretty well ingrained in people's understanding, in your common sense understanding of uh, the format, um, which itself is, is, is kind of interesting, kind of fascinating to see then in what ways, you know, that the, the audience expectation becomes so very different than it was it becomes more of a family entertainment than it used to be. Um, and then, of course, and this really gets to kind of the backbone of uh, of the book, is you see the elements of blackface and minstrelsy then uh, of course, ending up in these new forms of culture technology uh, that were taking root at the time. You know, like film and advertising and radio, uh, recordings, uh, all these mediatized forms of, uh, cultural transmission, uh, become very central to how Minstrelsy continues to, how, how a flagging form of entertainment kind of finds a, a second life for lack of a better word, uh, by being utilized and and circulating through these, these other technologies. Um, uh, and so that was something that was really kind of interesting and sort of fascinating for me to, uh, discover. I mean, you, you literally would have, um, you know, these agonizingly written, uh, you know, letters in entertainment papers of the day by minstrels sort of bemoaning the, uh, the death of this uh, wonderful American institution. Like, oh, we can't teach or show our kids these wonderful minstrel shows like our parents enjoyed in days of yore. Uh, so, a lot of like looking back upon the the, the golden era of minstrelsy with, with fascination and with longing for a you know, kind of quote unquote simpler form of entertainment. Um, and so minstrelsy itself becomes contrasted in a lot of ways with new forms of uh, culture that were seen as more sort of dangerous or scary or taboo, like jazz music uh, or uh, film, the film industry and uh, the motion picture uh suddenly takes the place you know whereas in the 1820s or 1840s minstrelsy was the scary form of entertainment uh you know a century later it it was uh it was very much a, a conservative and nostalgic uh, and a safe form of entertainment for a particular segment of of the population
0: yeah no i mean i mean the the way the way uh i i read at least this part uh, much of your book in, in this regard is that in some ways you're really talking about an era in which kind of blackface performance, which is this horrifying racialized form that was also tied to a very specific um, entertainment complex set of performance networks, uh, formalized structures. And in some ways, um, including like blackface images had circulated, uh, you know, Gilded age advertising, for instance, like there's, you know, it's critical to the birth of all kinds of stuff, but it seems also well, when you're, things you're doing, when you're talking about kind of the circulation um, and, and, and minstrelsy finding a, a new life in these new forms is, is in some ways, kind of the, the splitting off of blackface performance from the official minstrel show in a lot of different ways.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an interesting, uh, interesting way of, of, of... Sort of terming it uh Sam, I think that's great, um yeah, the fact that you had um the images themselves that were that were of course very prevalent, and as you're saying, you know going back to like sheet music and images of t d rice as Jim Crow in the eighteen twenties, very sort of famous images of him uh that circulate um and so in in a number of of different and interesting ways the the i wouldn't exactly call it a split though I mean you know the 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 mince becomes maybe atomized i would say it gets broken it could it, it it gets sold off for peep for parts uh to go with kind of mixing my metaphors here um so like chunks of it would be used in different uh in different ways so i mean in some ways, I would say that you 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 can't have a minstrel show without blackface, uh, and as soon as you put someone in blackface, there's the expectation of um of uh, of some minstrel elements to it. Um, so even if you're not getting the full uh, minstrel show as like an evening's entertainment uh you're going to be seeing pieces of it. You know, I'm thinking of something like um oh gosh, I mean, you know, there are any number of examples that I could pull out of my brain, but you look at something like the Eddie Cantor movie, uh Roman Scandals, uh, where at one point the plot is, of course, you know, incidental to the the the, the comedy, but at one point he 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 ends up uh, impersonating, uh, an African slave in this Roman bath. And of course, as soon as he canter puts on blackface makeup, um, the comedy and, and the song and the, uh, the, the, the scene in which he's wearing it suddenly takes on, you can see the, the connection to minstrelsy. Um, so even in, in, in films, if you're, if you're pulling out, you put someone in blackface for a scene or or for an extended period, it just, it, it, it brings along, um, inevitably brings up some of the other tropes of minstrelsy along with it. If it's a song, if it's the type of humor, if it's the dance, and of course it's also the kind of the, the, the stereotyping, um, the denigrating stereotyping
0: that becomes part of it as well picking up the thread I mean so in in this kind of um, this kind of complex what you call atomizing of blackface that you're describing in this book you found a couple of different theoretical concepts that you use to um, kind of help pick through these various threads and to, to, to analyze them and I wonder if you could just talk about um, a couple of them before diving into a few of the chapters Um so so, for me, one of the big ones was um the way you think about circulation and specifically kind of the circulation of blackface images um and performance through the media
1: yeah i mean it, it's it's again it's it's part and parcel with what happens in uh an age where uh the type of culture that people are consuming is. Uh, transmitted via uh, these new technological uh, means. Um, and so when you have radio and you have uh, advertising and you have film uh, and you have these recordings and all of these things are either uh, being invented during the jazz age or coming into uh, prominence during this time period um And what happens is, of course, is obviously with with, with anything, with any idea or with any image, it starts to be reproduced in larger numbers uh, and it starts to be distributed uh, faster. Um, And so this idea about circulation, when we talk about the circulation of uh, of ideas or concepts or ideologies or racisms, um, it's during this time that things really kind of pick up speed. Uh, and one of the things that I was really trying to unpack or track or 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 decode about this time period is just how Widespread and how quickly could some of these images uh, circulate, um, and and then what is the impact of that? Um, so what what does it mean when um, a uh, a Aunt Jemima pancake advertisement is you know shows up in a million newspapers around the country? You know how is that different from a single live performance of a blackface show in New York or Chicago or somewhere else. Um, And so that is, you know, again, really becomes very sort of important for me uh, in terms of understanding the continued importance of studying blackface and studying minstrelsy during this particular uh, era. Um, because the impact of one single image or one single recording or one single performer could just be amplified, you know, by a factor of 10 or a hundred, depending on how, how quickly those things, uh, how widely they circulated and how quickly they circulated. Um, so that really is kind of very central to it, along with this idea of 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 the materiality of blackface. And it's something that's always kind of fascinated me, is not just blackface as an idea or as a cultural phenomenon, or as a set of racist expectations, but as a the the objectness or the thingness of the Of the blackface mask itself um and that is also i think really important in terms of the way in which or your one's ability to um, to study and analyze these these particular products and their interaction with e- with each other um so yeah, so so circulation and materiality are two for me two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways, uh, and certainly go hand in hand in terms of the methodology that underlies uh, the book and the particular historicization in it, uh, the case studies that were chosen, um, very much a, a Marxist analysis of it. You know, looking at commodities uh, and commodity circulation. Uh, and the cultural, the way that the the, the cultural resonances of these things. So, I mean, yes, I'm looking at blackface both as an idea, but also looking at as a as a business, as part of a business model, uh, and as a physical thing that is bought and sold in a marketplace. You know, and Jemima is right there on the shelf of the piggly wiggly, uh, you know, right next to, you know, these other advertising icons. Um, and that has, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of resonances. And of course, then we look at what's happening right now. I mean, it's, it's, it's so fascinating that, that in the summer of, of 2020, here we are. And then, you know, finally, uh, PepsiCo, the owner of the owner of the Aunt Jemima company, is realizing that boy, this is kind of racist. The this thing, and we should really get rid of it. Um, and who knows if Uncle Ben and and Mrs Butterworth are next? But you know, it's it, I'm being a, a little bit flip about it, but but it is very very much um, these images and that image in particular, as a great example, is something that that it colored and it created a certain anticipation about uh, sort of black womanhood in the 1920s and well beyond the 1920s, obviously, uh, that created this sort of distorted image of, of it. So, you know, these things cannot be taken lightly. Uh, they can't be taken singularly. Uh, and they can't be taken as um absent from uh the other web of of kind of racist black-faced images were around at the time. I mean it's 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 a it's almost a composite of it. If we wanted to really if we want to really capture, understand the 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 basis of 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 kind of race racist ideology of the time you can't pick one image or one instance or one performance or one song you look at the web of these things and how they're interconnected and if you understand how all these things are interconnected and how they support each other um one it's just it's staggering to think about the amount of this, uh, and the number of ways that these racist caricatures were being reinforced in people's daily lives. Um, and then of course you, you recognize that this is, this was very much the bedrock of how people, people interacted with each other, you know, between races and in, even in some, to some extent, how black people sort of, uh, understood, uh, or self-identified, like these things became a uh, part of their, their own sort of cultural conversation. Um, and to me, it's just staggering to think about the, shall we say, the volume of uh, blackface and of minstrelsy that was around at the time. So you know, in terms of, of what was surprising to me as I went into this investigation, that wasn't your question, Sam, but I'm answering a new one. Um, you know, what was surprising to me was that very idea was like, I had a couple of, of leads about things that I, I knew I wanted to kind of look at, but the, the sheer extent of it was even beyond what I imagined was, was out there and imagine was Franco was even sort of possible. Um, so yeah it was it was in some ways it was a bit of an exhausting book to write i mean it was it was a uh it had a very long as i said you know gestation uh period um and of course the subject matter was something that was very uh difficult to um study uh and uh but at the same time very important and so uh yeah, it was there were a number of times during the process where I just had to kinda stop and take my breath as I as I tried to comprehend the the extent of what I was was trying to map out.
0: Yeah, and, and this idea this idea of materiality is really is really interesting, really useful in some ways because it flags uh uh, it's, very, it's very it's very Catholic, and I mean in, in like the, the literal sense of the word. Like it, it, it flags all kinds of different instantiations of blackface ideologies and blackface performances as kind of equally blackface. So a performance of a of show or a movie of an actor or a product on a shelf um, all interact, like you said, but are also all equally um, instances of this, you know, blackface performance and blackface ideology. Um, and and I think that, yeah, especially in this moment where consumer culture kind of hits overdrive um, and the vast proliferation of, of these different kinds of materials, it really lets you get at, um, at a lot of it. And so and so, I think it's, it's a kind of a nice segue into um, the way that you opened the first um, kind of case study of the book is uh, Burt Williams, who is this, Fascinating figure. He's uh, received um, a fair bit of treatment and and kind of you position him the way I read it is someone kind of almost uh, at the at the like you operating at the precipice of this new um, world of circulation that he comes out of uh, he comes out of film. Sorry, he comes out of theater in which there's kind of one performance. And even if images are circulating, it's a more limited circulation and he ends in a moment of film, um, where images can proliferate kind of beyond all all, all control. But uh, I'll leave you. Uh, so, who, who's Bert Williams, in, and kind of how do you frame him in in the book?
1: No, I think um, I think that I mean you, it's well put there, Sam. I mean when you say that uh, that he was kind of on the precipice. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a, a, a kind of a fascinating uh, opening terms of that case study, because I was looking at Burt Williams at the end of his career uh, and at the end of his life. And Bert Williams, of course, is, is kind of the, he's an African, uh, African-American man uh, who uh, performed in blackface uh, starting in the 1890s, uh, was by far the most famous uh, black, blackface entertainer in history. and And rightly so, because he was a a comedic genius um you listen to his recordings if you see the the film clips you get uh, and in from uh contemporary uh you know reviews of some of his of his work i mean the uh the the artistry of him is is without parallel um and i got to absolutely give give uh williams credit for that and so um but he has a connection to this earlier time period um, of blackface performance, and in particular of kind of African American blackface performance, which started in 1865, but 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 was around um, you know well into the 20th century. And so he comes out of the the, the live performance tradition, but um, the book focuses very specifically on the last. Uh, the last show that he was in. Um, And he actually, it was a a play called, a musical, called Under the Bamboo Tree. Uh, He was the only African-American man in the cast. He was the only performer in blackface. And um, he died during its out-of-town tryouts. They were were planning on bringing this show. The Schubert's were some of the producers on it. uh, And they were going to bring it to uh to New York and Williams never made it. He he they were I think in Detroit uh when uh he um he died. And what's what's interesting for me is is both to sort of study Williams at that moment at the end of his at the end of his at the end of his life, but also what was fascinating for me, and this was one of those kind of aha moments uh is the fact that the show did make it to Broadway and that he was replaced after he died. He was replaced by a white actor performing in blackface. So took over the role of, of this, this Porter, this servant character who works in this hotel. Uh, and to me, that itself was just fascinating. I mean, just um, really and really important. i only just like, is it kind of quirky fascinating, but to me it was illustrative or emblematic of the, the way that blackface was something that, the reproducibility of blackface was something that could transfer between the race of the person underneath it. Um, there was no consideration about uh ending the show there's no consideration about um finding another black performer to replace williams they could have found them there were other ones that could have taken over the role uh and instead they went with uh, a white actor a guy named james barton and the
2: the fact that that
1: surrogation kind of passed over almost without much comment was in itself um, very, very important for me.
0: Um, and I mean, to, to, to kind of, um, the, the way I understood that, and I, and I agree it was, it was really fascinating and kind of um, to situate uh, Williams kind of in, in the scholarship about him a little bit more I mean, maybe this is like the, the Cliff Notes version is kind of that he was seen as, um, you know, he's often kind of portrayed early on. He was seen because he performed in blackface, uh, was kind of left out of histories of uh, African American or kind of, I mean, he's from the Bahamas, so kind of global black diasporic performance in the Americas. Um, and then in, you know, in, in more recent years, there's been kind of a evaluation of the ways in which, despite Um, performing under a a blackface mask for, uh, in some ways, uh, theatrical, but also, you know, very, that that was the way to get over in this incredibly racist period, that there's this kind of tragic quality to him. And and the way I read what you were talking about with this reproducibility um, is that, in some ways, the situation's even more tragic, maybe, than Williams or people at the time realized because they hadn't quite, people at the time hadn't quite grasped the extent of this new circulation the the velocity of these images the ways in which blackface would be replicated to infinity and so williams's efforts to kind of undercut or complicate blackface performance and people's the audience's understanding of what he was doing even if they could function in in within a specific stage environment once they were replicated out beyond it he no longer had control of it and they would be understood within this kind of web of, of, uh, blackface performance that you were discussing before.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, it's fascinating again, to read, uh, some of the obituaries about, uh, Williams and to read some reviews about under the bamboo tree, uh, when Barton took over, um, that the there that this this very very uh stereotyped understanding of uh of williams and of of sort of you know the 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 blackmail buffoonery uh was absolutely present and yeah i mean it's 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 you know i i tried not to i mean it's very hard um you don't want to get sort of over sentimentalized um your subjects when you're historicizing them. And so yeah, it's hard not to fall into the trap of um turning Burt Williams into this tragic uh figure. Um like in in a in a, a narrative eyes or fictionalized way. I I I I I had to work to resist that feeling, although it, it is very much true that there is um you know despite his efforts at um uh, m- creating more nuanced or or human portrayals through his characters you know he called himself the jonah man ki- character that was kind of his uh phrase for the for for the his style of performance the jonah man um that it didn't necessarily, as much as he, you know, certain historians try to sort of celebrate uh, him for his uh, efforts and his abilities at, you know, to use uh, Ellison's phrase, you know, uh, slip the yoke and change change the joke, slip the yoke. Um, Williams wasn't able to do that necessarily um, because of the fact that once, once his image got away from him once, once he no longer had control over it in a live performance environment, then it, it really fell back into the, the way that these things were being received were in some pretty st- racist and stereotyped
0: ways. In a slightly later chapter, you kind of uh, pick up this thread um, with almost the opposite of Williams. When you discuss uh amateur minstrel performances and their prol- proliferation in the um, early 20th century, which in, in a funny way um, is using the same technology as Williams is kind of most at home in, but um, scattered o- over, over a continent. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that. Um,
1: oh yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, I, I it was certainly the, the, out of the, the case studies and, and out of the, the 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 what was was covered in the book, this is the area that has the least amount of existing scholarship around it, uh, and it was um, again a bit overwhelming to delve into this area of of amateur theatricals in general, and then uh, amateur minstrelsy more specifically, because of course this is, this was, um, you're right to say in terms of the, the, the technologies, uh, of it, in terms of, of the liveness of these events were, were absolutely crucial, uh, in the amateur realm, which was the area that Williams was most, uh, familiar with. And although Williams was of course internationally famous, um, the reason that I think there hasn't been a lot of coverage of, of amateur theatricals and amateur minstrelsy is because these things were flying completely under the radar. They weren't seen as interesting or important enough or cultural enough uh, to warrant attention in newspapers, in Scholarship, um, you know, people just weren't talking about what what the 4-H Club was doing or the Rotary, or or whatever group was putting on the minstrel show, Um, and and yet and yet uh, once you start to ask some questions or you get into this realm and you see again that that minstrelsy was not something that was confined to major metropolitan areas it wasn't confined to um just the media technology it wasn't confined to like famous performers like Williams or Cantor or or you know images like Aunt Jemima um these things are being performed all over the country all the time by groups of local communities in small towns and, you know, and everywhere from Maine to California and everyone, you know, everywhere in between. Like people were performing small town amateur minstrel shows for their communities. Um and that is um I think one I'm you know kind of mind boggling to think about the amount and the extent of it, which you know you can only begin to hint at because there are there, there's only you know partial information that still exists around around amateur uh, amateur theatricals and amateur minstrelsy but everything about it indicates how can I phrase it it's a very conservative form of minstrelsy in the fact that it's it's very much is it harkening back to this earlier era of the minstrel show and and its simple pleasures. Um, And interestingly enough, it's very much using minstrelsy, using the blackface mask as a way of kind of assuaging the anxieties of the jazz age. What were smaller communities afraid of? Were they afraid of change? Were they afraid of speed, of technology, of factories, um, of the encroachment of others? Yes. And they were able to kind of make fun of or refract those fears. Through the comedy of the minstrel show, so when you have a an amateur minstrel show and you've got a you know white man in uh, blackface, you know expressing his befuddlement over a radio or uh, a movie or uh, urbanization. And your audience is laughing at these things. I mean, it's 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 like a a pressure release valve. That's how I see it for these communities. They're laughing at the things that they are generally concerned, genuinely concerned about uh, in their in their lives when it comes to the age in with in which they they live. And and to me, I think it's 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 fascinating and of course very indicative of the time that they would turn to out of all the methods of culture or entertainment, all the, the ways that they could uh and certainly comedy is always um a way of of sort of addressing fears and responding to them. That's you know one of the basis of you know laughter and comedy. Um and it's fascinating to me that they use or turn to uh, to minstrelsy in order to do that, um, and that's another way that these these shows are very much not nineteenth-century performance. They are of the twentieth century. They are of uh, you know the twenties and thirties because these things are 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 very much grappling with current current events and current kind of fears, um, and anxieties that people had. Um, so unpacking that, I mean, looking at these, um, decaying, you know, moldering, falling apart, um, scripts from the time period, because these things were not meant to last. I mean, nobody thought these things were, you know, that some, you know, poor schnook like me was going to be, you know, reading them by the hundreds. Uh, on you know 90 years later so these things are falling apart uh, and yet the 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 way that they're sort of discussing uh, race and the time and their their own daily lives is to me uh, just really really amazing
0: yeah and, and I mean it's interesting because I mean while there's change um, in the subject matter as you say there's also kind of an explicit, referencing tradition. But what's interesting is also that my, my reading of kind of the the literature on, on 19th century minstrelsy is that many similar dynamics are at play there. So if you think about like wages of whiteness, where they're talking about minstrelsy as a relation, as reaction to certain forms of early industrialization um, and using racism um, and, and racialized performance, racializing performance as a way to, 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 to deal with that. Um, it's actually, it's remarkable how, how similar that is to something that happened almost a hundred years earlier.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, yeah, there is something like really, um, kind of sinister to this particular art form in the way that, in the way that it, that it so, um, callously and conveniently is able to uh, otherize uh, someone by race and then use that as a way of dealing with these um, fears of you know these these capitalistic fears of industrialization or technology or whatever it is um, that's yet kind of uh In many ways, I feel, and people will certainly disagree with me about this, but I think in many ways that's how minstrelsy is able to sustain itself. That is one of the necessary qualities of a society, of our society, that allows for blackface and minstrelsy to continue to to continue to exist because these anxieties they're around in the 1820s, the 1920s and they're around in the 2020s. Um, so yeah, we're dealing with a particular, uh, kind of homegrown method of uh, dealing with these other, these other, these other issues.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, you know the the one thing I, I mean I wonder about in terms of kind of an escape valve is I'm also thinking about you know Linda Gordon's recent book The Second Coming of the KKK where you know it, the, the 20s the you know um, the kind of racializing localized performance of misery in the 20s uh, there were other kinds of racializing localized performance that people were doing in the 20s that um, I were, were not just blowing off steam that that you know this kind of uh, cultural uh play and entertainment could have very real world consequences
1: oh yeah oh yes of course yes i mean yeah you're absolutely right that yeah you know the the violence on on black bodies uh was something that was part and parcel with the you know with the, the the othering that minstrelsy provided uh, and you know like even how they the, the KKK and and of course the first what's considered the first blockbuster film birth of a nation you know 1915 uh when that came out i mean you know famously was a, a quite obvious recruiting tool for uh the KKK um and uh, it it you know so th- they were able to use that uh these new technological forms as well, um, which very much go along alongside of um the type of blackface imagery that I that's covered in the book. And I don't, if you've seen I don't know if you've seen Black Klansmen, the the recent Spike Lee film, but that's a really fascinating there's a moment where you've got these Klansmen watching scenes from uh from Birth of a Nation. It's 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 another kind of, uh, Lisa, of course, a fascinating, wonderful filmmaker. And it's a great kind of meta
0: commentary on the history of film
1: and the history of entertainment.
0: So, so just kind of picking up the thread of of materiality. Um, I just, the, the other thing that's fascinating kind of, uh, about these amateur performances is also that as much as they say that they're kind of the same, like you said, they're this very traditional, you know, quote unquote, traditional form of minstrel performance. Um, the fact that the audience is actually performing them the localization of it is actually kind of a radical difference right these are prior to this i mean there were some local minstrel performances but um mostly minstrelsy was experienced kind of as as a professionalized form
2: yeah no you're absolutely right um yeah
1: i mean you had communities that were in the absence of Uh, In many ways, the professional minstrel show because professional minstrelsy uh, was very much on the wane during this time period uh, because it just wasn't economically feasible to have a a traveling uh, performance, a live performance troupe traveling around the country Um, because, you know, film was so much cheaper and faster and easier. So it was losing out to vaudeville and minstrelsy was losing out to uh film and radio, uh, just every which way. So in the absence of that, uh, instead of just turning to other forms of entertainment, communities then started to put these things on themselves. Uh, so it does become very localized. Um, in the fact that, You've got non-professionals who are performing it. And in addition to that, they're performing it in front of their own communities. And that is another thing that I think is really kind of crucial, a crucial piece in this puzzle is that you had people performing in front of people, their own friends, neighbors, and relatives. That was the people that were in the audience for these performances and if you look at the scripts that are written specifically for amateur minstrel troops, the scripts acknowledge that they are written in such a way as to allow people to add local details um it 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 sort of assuages the the concerns or the fears of people that wouldn't be like oh i know you're not a a real performer but you can still pull this off uh this is how it's you know they're written um and so yeah very much so that it's about the a community a community performing itself to itself i think it was very much um a crucial aspect of the success of these uh of the amateur industry as 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 a whole uh and and why these performances were uh were so widespread um was that 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 kind of local factor to it i think is really really key
0: yeah so um you kind of end um the book kind of with a a discussion of, of the ways in which many of these forms kind of continue to circulate or how people think about them. And and it's a discussion that's made incredibly current. I think we mentioned it earlier um, by, um, you know, we're doing this in uh, July of 2020, where uh, Aunt Jemima, after 80 years, 90 years, is finally being pulled from shelves as a blackface performance. And so I'm wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about the ways in which you see this kind of intricate web of of circulating blackface imagery in the 20s and 30s how you see that um connecting with kind of the mass media going forward and 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 what the efforts to kind of uh get rid of figures like Aunt Jemima um, what, what what they might mean
2: yeah i mean um You know, I was thinking of, um, as I was finishing up the book,
1: um, well, you know, 2016, 2017, and on the, during the same week, weekend that, that Trump was inaugurated, uh, Ibram Kendi had an, uh, opinion piece in the New York Times. About um, the kind of the false progression narrative when it comes to moving towards a more enlightened or a less racist society. This, of course, then is kind of the the, the undergirds the backbone to his book, you know, stamped by from the beginning, which is really amazing, by the way, and. You know, essentially, what what he's
2: saying is, you know, as anti racist efforts move forward,
1: racist ep- efforts move forward too. Like they catch up, they find ways of adapting and responding to um, the
2: advancements in in a society. Um And so that, to me, kind of
1: really paralleled this idea of we can't think of minstrelsy as you know, from where we began this conversation. We can't think of minstrelsy as a nineteenth century phenomenon, and it's very much a twentieth century phenomenon, and, it, and it, of course, it doesn't end in the jazz age, the way that my where my book ends um it It continues
2: forward um and so there are
1: in the same way that minstrelsy then is adapted and used for the forms of technology that were new um in the 1920s that you know uh with the reproducibility with the acceleration with the the way that culture transmitted and 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 uh and was conveyed you know that's the 1920s these things keep keep up a pace you know what i mean like like even as we get into the late 20th and and into the 21st centuries the
2: the, the the ways in which
1: technologies can and often are used um, for, to propagate racist imageries uh, is something that is just going to continue.
2: Um, I don't see that going
1: away uh, you know anytime soon. Um, so we have to acknowledge the, and, and grapple with we being scholars and historians like you and myself, but just anybody who's wanting to think about these ideas, we have to grapple with the, the fullness and the complexity of the ways in which these things continue moving forward. And how they continue to be uh, they continue to be used
2: um, and I think there are a lot of ways that
1: I think that the technologies that we utilize most today um, are are in many ways um, a furtherance of the potential for widespread racism in entertainment and in culture uh, in the same way that, you know, recordings and radio
0: and film were a hundred years ago. So that's... Uh, no, that that's no, that, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. I mean, it was something I was left... Um, Thinking about really struck with by um by 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 your 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 book um was n- not just how easily did blackface take to these new technologies, but the extraordinary proliferation of these new technologies in some ways and and in the images that they carried along with them in some ways can seem almost um l- linked to blackface right that that the, the ways that images are bought and sold um that 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 they they can be connected in in some ways to the ways that blackface had been selling racialized images for for much earlier and that actually um wondering whether this kind of web of of um blackface materials actually really shapes um not just the the kinds of circulation of media at the level of content, but in some ways the circulation of media at the level of structure
2: you know
1: that's that's fascinating Sam I mean you know um and that's an interesting thing to contemplate to think about i mean is there something you know almost inherently um I don't know, is there something inherently racist in a form of technology? Can you call a form of technology uh, racist in itself, not in the what is being saying, you know, like, you know, the, the it's the medium, not the message uh, that is in some way racist. I mean, that's um, that is a really interesting idea to, um, to contemplate uh, particularly. And I'm, am I'm, I'm, I'm i'm you know I'm not disagreeing with you, I think that's uh kind of a fascinating uh avenue to uh pursue uh, because you know certainly in certainly in practice you can see that that there are problems with it um but is there something almost baked into the uh the mediatization process itself well, yeah. I mean quite possibly. I mean you can look at a number of, of examples. I mean I, I think of things like the way that um early celluloid film uh when developed uh captures uh nuance and subtlety in white skin so much easier than it does in black skin. Of course that's gonna change how things go. Uh how early recording technology um privileged um you know you weren't able to get the uh the complex sounds in uh like things like the trumpet, which was considered largely a jazz and a and a black instrument uh it was the technology itself uh that was not refined or calibrated to capture these uh the subtleties within them and something like an early um uh, you know, Louis Armstrong track. So, yeah, I mean, there is, uh, there, there's something, there's something to that notion that I think is deeply profound, uh, and, and equally unsettling to try to, to try to complement to try to contemplate. Um, and certainly I, I thought about that in terms of, of the specific work in the book. um, Focus more on other aspects of it. But um, if you're, you know, if you want to look at, as you say, this kind of continuum of uh, different technologies from the twenties up to the present and how they're utilizing, um, you know, caricatures uh, it is something that's, that's certainly worth, ex- worth exploring. I would say. Well, thanks.
0: Well, thank you. Um, I think, that's about it for now. Thank you so much for your time. Um, oh gosh, it's been a joy, Sam. It really have. Um, so again, we're this is the New Books Network. Um, we were talking with Kevin Byrne about his excellent new book, Minstrel Traditions: Mediated Blackface in the Jazz Age. If this conversation sounded interesting, I would definitely suggest there's uh, a whole lot more in the book. Um, and we'll catch you next time.